When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. Keeping dogs properly and responsibly. That's what we're trying to do. We can't do it anymore. I was so angry listening to him. A hundred euro is all we'll get, basically, for our baby. Between the jab and Christmas, you know, you could slip in a bank holiday in, you know, late November, early December. Join the conversation. Call 0818-969696. Extra WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96FM. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Good morning, good morning, good morning to you. I hope you're well and uh, I hope the day has started well for you. It's Gareth O'Callaghan here for PJ for the next couple of weeks on Cork's 96 FM on the Opinion Line. And uh, our text number, as you've just heard, there is 0833 96 96 96. Well, uh, I got one of those calls, you know, the call where you, you, you get and you think I'll always remember where I was when I got that call. I got it yesterday evening, around about 6, 6.15. And very, very, very sad news. And there's only one big story dominating all of the front pages, every single page of the newspapers this morning. And that is the tragic, unexpected death of Sinead O'Connor. Famous for so many reasons, not just as an icon, but also as a beautiful singer songwriter, as a woman who was not afraid to speak her mind, as a woman who revolutionised the country in so many ways that really it's only now when we look back that we realise what Sinead did very bravely, that a lot of people didn't want her to do, that a lot of people ran behind closed doors and didn't want to listen to, but she just kept blasting away and boy did she make a change in so, so many ways. Uh, The Irish Sun, nothing compared beautiful photograph of her. I would imagine it's the photograph of her back in 1990, singing Nothing Compares to You. Uh, Also, the Irish Examiner's front page story, black and white photograph, beautiful photograph again. And Tom Dunn writing on the front page of the Examiner this morning, he says she wore her troubles, which seemed so often overwhelming on her sleeve. I think that is one of the things she has so enamoured her to the Irish public. She was ferocious, but frail and honest with it. I think if there's one line that will resonate this morning for me, that's it. She was ferocious, but frail and honest with it. Beautiful tribute in the Examiner. As there is indeed in all of uh, the newspapers today, Irish Daily Star, Sinead, her name blasted across uh, the front page this morning. Tributes pouring in from all over the world. 
Uh, the Daily Mirror, nothing compared to you, Sinead. Uh, photograph of her, beautiful photograph taken, I think, probably around about 1978, 1997, should I say, 1998, when she had a full head of hair. And I don't know whether, I, I think... I think she looked beautiful without the hair, but I think she looks equally beautiful with the hair. Um, some gorgeous photographs. The Irish Independent, Sinead. Irish Daily Mail, probably my favourite photograph. Vulnerable, powerful and pure. Uh, death aged just 56, a mesmerising talent who bared her heart and took on the world. The London Times, uh, lovely photograph again, Sinead O'Connor. The Sydney Herald, uh, the Denver Post, the New York Times, they have all uh, allowed their front pages uh, as a window into the world and into the heart and soul of an incredible woman. And I think probably one of the most beautiful and most eloquent tributes this morning is in the Irish Times by Una Mullally, one of my favourite writers. She says, To rattle through biography is almost trite because O'Connor's meaning supersedes mere linear achievements. Her defiance was red hot. Shaved head, leather jacket, Doc Martin boots. She had the bravery to be authentic in an inauthentic place. A place that tried to hide people such as her, that attempted to sideline bolshy women, that demeaned female sexuality and that rejected rebellionists. I wonder are they talking about Ireland? Surely not. Uh, Una Mullally goes on to say, in recent years O'Connor was embraced in new ways, Irish society caught up with her, and people were liberated enough to openly comprehend and appreciate her greatness at scale. Sinead O'Connor was right. The love was real. And uh, that's a pretty, pretty red-hot tribute from Una Mullally in the Irish Times today. Now, uh, just in case you've just switched on and you haven't heard, Sinead O'Connor has died at the age of 56. Gosh, what a young age, prompting grief and tributes for a singer who enchanted and at times, bravely and rightfully so, shocked the world. Uh, Jim, X, Jim X Comet, former music shop owner, he's on the phone to me now. Morning to you, Jim. Good morning, Garrett. How are you? I'm very well. I was only talking about music shops and record shops, and those were the days when... Those were the days. They were. I, you know, Jim, it didn't... And yeah. We'll come back to Sinead in a moment, because I think Sinead is very much a part of this. I saw her vinyl, actually, in Golden Discs the other day. Yeah. So it kind of things are shining again in that respect. But a music shop, a record shop, it, it was one of those places, it was like the, 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 the TARDIS, Doctor Who's TARDIS, or it was like the transporter in the Star Trek Enterprise, where you it stepped was, into... Uh, and you were, you were transported away to beautiful, happier days, weren't you? You were, I, I think a record shop was never like an ordinary shop. It was more like a place within the community that people would go to congregate to be around music and to be around the stuff that was happening around music at the time. And it was as important to be in the shop to talk about a record as well as buying it. You know, you, you, you had all this kind of thing, you know, people would go into record shops and hang out there for hours without ever buying a record, but they'd just talk about records all day or they'd look at what was on the wall, what gigs were coming up, who was playing with who, who was listening to what, what was new that was coming in and stuff. It, it was it was a fantastic kind of community hub, I suppose, mm. for the best way to describe it. How, you know, and how did you react, Jim, to the news last night? I'm sure you must have been shocked. 
I was absolutely gobsmacked, to be honest with you. I was in my office at work and I just saw a mess. I, I, I briefly saw a message on my phone and I kind of did a double take. I said, no way. But yeah, I'm abs- absolutely shocked. It was um, the poor girl. Like, she's 56. She's way too young. And, and, and she, you know, it, it's just the journey, her life journey has gone into such a dark place in the last 10 years. And, you know, a lot of it has played out in social media, which is a cesspit as well. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, her son died tragically in the last 18 months. And I don't know how you'd get over that as a parent. You know, it, it, it's just a very, very, very sad day. Yeah, her last you social know? media comment, uh, it, she posted it on the 17th of July and... Uh, it says, hashtag lost my 17-year-old son to suicide in 2022. And then she goes on to say, been living as undead night creature since. He was the love of my life, the lamp of my soul. We were one soul and two halves. He was the only person who ever loved me unconditionally. I am lost in the bardo without him. And there's a fantastic photograph of the two of them. And he is the spit of her. It's an un- it's un- uncanny how... how alike they look in this, but such a heartbreaking tweet. Really, really it is. is. It is. It really is. You know, my heart My heart goes out to the poor girl. You know, I, I hope she's at peace. Yeah. You know, I really do, you know. Yeah. I, I I remember, um, I never met her, I never interviewed her, I, I was never in her company as such, but I do remember back in the 1990s, I was in the Virgin Megastore in Oxford Street in London, and I had just come out of the BBC because I was visiting a couple of friends in there and I was walking back up, heading towards Tottenham Court Road to get the tube back to the airport. And I was in just going through some stuff. You know the way you're looking through CDs yep. and that and you're trying to yep. sort of pass an hour or so. Um, and there was a young woman standing opposite me going through CDs and she had a hoodie and the hoodie, the hood of the hoodie was sort of pulled down low and I knew it was her. And yeah. I, I always remember somebody saying to me that if she's on her own, be careful. She may not want to talk to you, you know. And I walked yeah, over yeah. to her and I said, Sinead, rather than saying, are you Sinead? I just said, Sinead. And she looked up and she says, what are you doing here? I said, probably the same as you. I'm just trying to pass an hour. <laughs> and I didn't realize that she knew who I was. Maybe she didn't. Oh, but, that's good. <laughs> yeah. And then another day I remember many years ago, uh, I was in Dublin Zoo a family get-together yeah. when we were there. And I th- this is a memory I will never forget. Talk about lonely and isolated. She was wandering around Dublin Zoo on her own and she stood outside the tiger cage, the tiger enclosure, and she looked in. The tiger in the cage. Yeah. yeah. She looked yeah. in and yeah. she stared at him and she put her hand against the perspex glass and he came right up to her. And I wish I'd, so I'd, I'd had a camera. It was an extraordinary moment, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that says so many things. Yeah, I, I met. I well, I, I never met her myself, but I passed her in the hallway of the Savoy here in Cork. She was playing at one of the Heineken weekenders with Ja Wobble, and I can. I was debating speaking to her, but then I said, "You know what? I, she's playing a gig. She's probably in a different headspace, so I leave her off." But I can remember. She was so tiny. She was so tiny. I remember being really struck by that. Yeah. You know, like, and it, it, it just got me thinking of, I mean, outside of the stuff she's done herself, you know, she, she did so many great collaborations as well. She collaborated with, she'd collaborated with him on a track called Visions of You. Yeah. But she also collaborated with Massive Attack on their 100th Window album in, in 2003. And, um, 
Unfortunately, it was a collaboration that didn't last long because Massive Attack don't do long-term collaborations. But of all the singers that they've worked with, I think she really, really suited them. Oh, you know, God, she, yeah, I would say just, so, yeah. Yeah, she fitted into them just like a glove, yeah. you know. She was right out there on the fringe with the sort of stuff that they love and, and, and that they indulge. She in. completely was, and you yeah. know, she, she was a big, a big point. She, she was a huge supporter of reggae and hip hop and world music as well. Yeah. But I mean, if if you think back, I can remember the the impact the Lion and the Cobra had in nineteen eighty seven when it came out. That 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 was literally on every turntable in the country when it came out, and yeah. you know, there were there were so many. You know, there were so many female singers at the time in bands that I knew who were really, really influ influenced by Sinead and really kind of, you know, it, it gave people a get up and go. It, it, it gave a lot of women who, who wanted to get into music the kind of the inspiration to kind of go forward and do something because, mm. you know, she was like that, you know, it was... Powerful record. Yeah. You know, an and absolutely she, powerful record. She came in on the tail of the Joshua Tree in the United States in 1987, as you mentioned there, The Lion yes. of the Cobra. And yeah. I, 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 I don't like to think that they helped to catapult her to the, to, to, the, the, the fame pedestal that she, she very quickly I, I suppose it, if you were Irish at the time, there was always the YouTube platform because yeah. they were so big in 1987 and 1980, 1988. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't get away from it. But, but, but I do think that she had something that, that not only they didn't have, I mean, she had a depth and a spirituality about her that I think no other Irish artist, maybe with the exception of Van Morrison had, you know, she, she, she was up there on a pedestal on her own, I think. Yeah. I love you know? that. I, I, and there's a great, there's a great saying. Um, she said, she once said, I can't remember what television show she was on. She said, friends tell me I'm not a terrible person. I'm just not boring. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's absolutely brilliant. You know, yeah. but, but, even even if if you look back at we're, we're just talking about the whole America thing. I mean, when she appeared at the that the Bob Dylan tribute concert in mm. two thousand and three, and she was booed. She was booed for highlighting sexual abuses within the Catholic Church. Sinead yeah. was one hundred percent right, you know. And it's to my eternal embarrassment as it as I'm a huge Dylan fan, mm. and the fact that somebody was booed at a Bob Dylan tribute concert for protesting. You know, I mean, the the irony there is is is, is just huge. very much. You know, when you, you know, consider like D Dylan, you know, the answers, my friend, are blowing in the wind, and time, oh, yeah, times oh, they my, are changing. Yeah. Absolutely, and the times <clears throat> certainly were at the time. But I mean, were. Uh, if you like, she almost sacrificed. Her, I mean, she was right, but she sacrificed her career in in a way by doing that because the American audiences just turned against her. I mean, I would compare her to Nina Simone in a lot of ways, like that. Nina Simone. Even though she had a big career, she could have had a much, much bigger career had she not been so vocal in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Sinead was the same. Is, was the same. Sinead believed in something and whether it damaged her prospects or not, she was going to come out and say it and she had the courage of her convictions. Very few artists have that when it comes down to it. So true. You Jim, know, Jim, great, yeah. uh, great to talk to you. I'm, I'll have to leave it there. Pleasure talking to you, Gareth. Yeah, we've plenty more coming up in relation to Sinead. Some lovely memories as well. But it's great to talk to you, Jim. Take care and have a good day. Thanks. And you mind yourself, Gareth. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. That's Jim, Jim X comment there. Ken Sweeney is the showbiz editor at the Irish Sun and Ken's on the line. Morning to you, Ken. Ah, uh, very sad morning. Um, which with Sinead and and um, I think everyone else, I'm, I'm just in complete shock. Yeah, you 
you would have got quite close to the whole Sinead O'Connor, what would you call it, library or... or, I, or I don't. I, I, you know, the thing about Sinead O'Connor is that she was very funny. I just want to say this. She was a very funny, witty woman. And she loved journalists. And about 20 years ago, she got my mobile and she kept ringing it. She rang it as even a couple of weeks ago, she was ringing it. And she just wanted to find out what was going on and to have a chat. And many, many times... Um, you know, we would talk for an hour or two on the phone and nothing would end up in the paper. Nothing would end up in the paper. She'd say, listen, I, I, none of this is, is for print or whatever. And we'd laugh our heads off. And I suppose I just have two memories of Sinead O'Connor. One was, um, yeah, I was in bands before I was, a, I was a journalist. I was a musician. And I remember being down in the Hot Press Hall of Fame, which was a place on Abbey Street where, where you know, where it was a the gig centre for a while in Dublin in the late 90s and I remember there was a hot press gig on and the undertones were playing and every big Irish band was playing and Sinead O'Connor was playing they, this, they could do this because this was hot press and they could get any band they wanted and they had a whole bunch of them on that night and they all played and they all, they all were very loud and Sinead O'Connor came on singing a cappella and she just blew them all away how did she blow them all away? The presence the presence in her voice you know, they say with singers, do you believe them when they're singing to you? And by God, did I believe Sinead O'Connor. She was just fantastic, and she just had that presence. And another little memory was, I remember I was working for another paper, Sinead was getting married in Las Vegas, and she told me about it, and, and I, I, you know, I was going to send a photographer, and this was Vegas, I'm, I'm a, a Dublin guy, a Dublin reporter in Dublin, and I'm trying to work it all out, and I, I got this photographer, a local photographer in Vegas, an American guy, to go down and take pictures for us, you know, at the wedding of, of the guy she was, of herself and the guy she was marrying. And when I rang the guy up, he said, listen, oh my God, he said, I'm a huge Sinead O'Connor fan. This American photographer said to me, I'm a massive Sinead O'Connor fan. I can't believe I'm going to, I'm going to be just taking pictures of her after her wedding. He went down to their wedding. Not only did he end up taking pictures of her wedding, mm. when he turned up, Sinead said, we don't have a witness. Would you be a witness? <laughs> <laughs> this American photographer in Vegas ended up being a witness at, Sinead, at, one of, at Sinead O'Connor's wedding. Yeah. And that's how wonderful and that's how crazy it was. And when, the, you know, you know, it was... It wasn't always the phone, you know, sometimes could go silent for a long time and you wouldn't hear from her. And then she'd come back on and she'd be funny and she'd be witty. And I mean, she was very, very intelligent and had great insight. And, and uh, I mean, I think that uh, people say, you know, the whole ripping up the Pope on, on American TV, did, you know, did, did that ruin her career? Maybe she didn't want a career. And, and she was one of these people that, you know, uh, you know, in the 90s, there are all these Irish musicians who want to be the next year too. And they're all doing everything they can to become famous. And when you have the kind of talent that Sinead O'Connor has, you know, you, you can't help but happen. You know, yeah. it kind of helped. The, the world turns. And she used her platform um, to, you know, to, 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 you know, she was vindicated. The stuff she was saying about clerical abuse, which caused all that trouble on American TV. Later on, we didn't know what she was talking about. Later on, she was vindicated. And I saw her many times playing many gigs. And every time she was fantastic. She knew how to, you know, she knew how to stand on stage. She knew how to use a microphone. She knew how to perform. And she was a great songwriter as well. Was that amazing uh, unlimited talent that she carried too heavy for her Ken um, I think she had all sorts of issues that, that, you know from childhood which are well documented which she spoke about many times um, uh, I think those things were on her shoulders and, and uh, she made, but she channeled that through her music and that's what gave her music that, that you know that incredible 
atmosphere that that's what that's what made you know that's what made it so breathtaking her music she channeled all that into it she had those those demons and uh, i mean she you know she you know she some rock stars passed away in their 20s i mean she you know she had so much talent and she had so much interest in music and she made sham nose records she made kind of reggae records she made pop records she got bored with the whole um <clears throat> she got bored with the whole you know pop star thing on that level and she wanted to go off and do um, different things and she wanted to highlight other issues and she wanted to perform and work with loads of people and i think you know if you look on you know irish artists of, of her era i mean she's at the very top i mean the worldwide the whole world you know erupted last night when she when she passed away i mean there were messages going from all over the place and yes, there's an Irish thing as well. Everybody's mum, everybody's grandmother, everybody's sister, you know, they all feel, they felt, they felt, they knew Sinead, that, that her, her ups and downs. I mean, she just, I remember uh, being at the Hot Press Awards in 1999, again in the Hot Press Hall of Fame, and she came in with, with uh, B.P. Fallon, and she, at this stage, she'd been ordained a priest. So she came in ordained as a priest for the first time. You can imagine how many heads turned for that. And yeah. You know, she 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 felt that maybe you know the Catholic Church. Maybe if she went you know inside it and became a priest, maybe she could you know change it. And then of course she she had her conversion to Islam as well, and she took that very seriously right until the end. But the thing I want to say as well, which you know I'm just going back over what I said at the very start. She was very witty, Sinead O'Connor. She was very funny. I know there's this vision of a tortured artist and and. You know, the issues she had and the pain that she was often talking about, but she could also be incredibly funny. She never lost that. She did, she she would have you screaming with laughter on the phone, and and I I did you know she did let me put some of that stuff into um you know in, into into the papers I worked for. And she said like you know when she went celibate for a while, she said the whole of Ireland was much safer than now she was celibate and stuff. And she was just very funny, and and I I, I just I miss her, you know. You know, I suppose there's that thing sometimes where you interview somebody and they're very witty and you just think, oh my God, I'm not going to talk to someone that witty now for the rest of the week or maybe for the rest of the month. She had that. She had that intelligence. And also she had, um, you know, she was mass market. This is another thing I want to say. She, you know, she gave me a song about two years ago, um, uh, uh, a song about On the Highway to give away, you know, to on uh, for the Irish Sun's website. Oh, I was kind of chuffed, you know, like, like, mm. You know, just just, and I said, well, why do you want to give it away to the Irish Sun? Why do you want it on our website? And she said, I want as many people to hear this song as possible. I want it on the Irish Sun's website because you've got this massive audience. And that she was, that's what she was into. And, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you know, she was in the papers too much. Sinead O'Connor was a very, very clever woman. She knew how to deal with the press. She knew what to say. She knew what, what not to say. There was never a case that Sinead O'Connor was... Um, you know, was was, you know, was being taken advantage of. I always felt that that you know, she always rang me. She always told me exactly what she wanted to say. And I mean, later on in life, as you know, she became a journalist. She was doing some stuff for one of the Sunday papers, so she found her calling. But she loved journalists and she loved people, and she had that thing where she would just, you know, she would walk around the, the, the streets talking to people. She gave away houses, her own houses, to charity. I mean, it's quite quite incredible the generosity and there's a huge volume of work. And like like with all artists. You know, they leave behind a body of work that, that that you know we'll all be listening to, and people will be listening to in hundreds and hundreds of years. Thanks a million, Ken. Enjoyed listening no to you. No problem. Thank you very Take much. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Bye-bye. Ken Sweeney, showbiz editor at the Irish Sun.
Tributes all over the world to Sinead O'Connor, who passed away yesterday. Um, the New York Times says, in shearing her head, quote, she was literally shearing away a false narrative. That was what Alison McCabe said, the author of Why Sinead O'Connor Matters, well worth reading. Um, she told, this is Sinead told Spin in 1991, shaving my head to me was never a conscious thing. I was never making a statement. I just was bored one day and I wanted to shave my head. And that was literally all there was to it. However, she also said, the women who are admired are the ones that have blonde hair and big lips and wear red lipstick and wear short skirts because that's an acceptable image of a woman. And because I have no hair, people think I'm angry. You can just see her saying this. Uh, great friend of Sinead's, well-known solicitor, Gerald Keane joins us. Good morning, Gerald. Good morning, Gareth. I can hear you. We have you there now. Coming so close after Christy Dignam's death, I know you were a great friend to both of these wonderful individuals. You must be devastated this morning. I am, yeah. It's very, very sad. I mean, uh, I, I, I would have known both of them on a kind of a different level than maybe the public uh, persona that they exhibited. I mean, you know, I remember many years ago asking them, I wanted to hold a function in Drake Manor to Sport. Actually, it was the Field of Dreams, uh, Down Syndrome Cork, and the Ross Nugent Foundation, and I needed artists. And I approached both of them separately, and they agreed immediately to perform and did so free of charge and were magnificent on the night, you know, with the, an attendance of about 500 people. They were really great. But with Sinead, you know, she was just a, a gorgeous person. The, the, the Sinead I knew was, the ones I remember is her coming to stay in Drayton Manor, and where I live, and you know, coming down in the morning and she'd come in the dressing gown and make toast and, and, and hot water and sit on the couch with her legs crossed, looking at the TV and having a chat. And she, you know, she came across as very, very vulnerable. I always felt, you know, you, you wanted to mind her, if that made sense. You want to put your hand around her shoulder and say, listen, don't worry, because she had a tragic upbringing and, and you don't get away from that. And, and everybody will talk about, which is undeniable, her incredible voice, uh, you know, 10 wonderful albums. I, I think Universal Mother 1984, when it was released, is one of the great albums in, in my lifetime. And, and she really, I think she did so much for, for causes and dragging people into the 21st century. And she was very outspoken. But the side I kind of spent time with, even when I went up and had meals and drinks with her in Bray, in her home Bray, was, it was a, a very soft, gentle person, very vulnerable. And, and you just felt that she needed minding. Um, and I, I do think she was looking for that as well. You know, I mean, I think she needed somebody um, to just, you know, mind her all the time. That's the impression I got when I was with her. Uh, and, and you wanted to do it because she was so gentle and sweet and soft. And she'd never say no. I mean, anything I ever asked her to do, she never got paid. Materialistic possessions meant nothing to her. Money meant absolutely nothing to her as far as I could see. But she supported many of the causes that I try and raise funds and never blink an eyelid. And the only time she couldn't support was because she already had booked or was committed to some performance or gig abroad or in Ireland. But, um, you know, there's just nothing bad I can say about her, you know. Mm. Uh, just a wonderful person. Very interesting. Intellectually, very impressive. Well more read than somebody like me. Well more, uh, knew far more about matters of the world than I did. And interesting to listen to. And you could debate with her. 
But as long as you knew you were going to lose, I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, if, if you ever had an argument with Sinead, I always had the last word, which is, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Take us back to, the, you painted a, a, a beautiful, perfect picture card, post, uh, po- postcard picture there, Gerald, of her sitting on the chair with the, the cup of warm water and the slice of toast in her dressing gown chatting to you. Yeah. I, I, I don't mean to be intrusive, but can you yeah. give us an idea of what she would talk to you about? Well, she could talk about anything. I mean, she, she didn't talk about football now, to be fair to her. So she did get into, you know, the sports because of her children. And obviously at this time, she lost poor old Shane, God rest him. My thoughts go to Jake Roisin and, and Yeshua, who are the three main children, and all the family. I mean, you know, there's many people, you know, that would love her. But what we spoke about would have been anything from, you know, sometimes, and we spoke a lot, by the way. Uh, she spoke an awful, spoke, uh, uh, she did speak an awful lot about politicians, I, I was a big uh, critic of the running of the HSC, and she took that on board big time, where, you know, I, 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 I continue to say that 35% of money in the health service goes on pen-pushing bureaucrats and not on frontline workers. Not the money, it's where it's going. She took that on board for a while, and we would talk about, she knew I was strong pro-Gardi, pro-police, uh, and she, she took that on, but then she'd kind of balance it by talking about not giving them too much power, spoke about abortion, spoke about... Um, you know, she she didn't go in too much, nor did I inquire in all the years about, you know, uh, the abuse he suffered because I, I didn't feel comfortable bringing it up and she didn't bring it up. And we spoke about, you know, uh, the country roads, the Irish people, where we're going as society. Uh, and she had views on, on all that, but they're intelligent views. And even if on some occasions I disagree with her, her arguments were compulsive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, they were, they had to be taken seriously because... You know, um, she she firmly believed in what she was saying, and she'd done quite a bit of research. She was a great reader, and but you know, even, I remember my my memories is all the times I'd say to her, you know, are you not going to eat the toast? What are you doing with it? She was, <laughs> she was, yeah. This used to drive me demented. By the time she had picked off three little pieces, I already had a big bag of sausage toast sandwich <laughs> by two, and, and and she was saying, "That's why you're fat," uh, you know, and. and this conversation with, with, but she used to pick at the, you know, and that, that wasn't once or twice, many times. She was a lovely cook. She was a great cook, and I had lovely meals in Bray. And, and, and you know, at times, you know, I, when I was with her, she was, she was happy. I mean, you know, I never saw her getting down um, as much as you'd think. She had a lovely smile, beautiful looking. She was, her voice was incredible. That's all said and done, but my memories were the times we spent together. And she kind of, you know, she'd get into Nepalese food or Indian food or, and, and, and when she got into it, it was the real deal. You know what I mean? I cooked her, I suppose, maybe four or five meals in my time, but they were fairly simple now compared to her cooking. Mm. I think anything she turned to, she was a success in, you know? Mm. Um, she wasn't successful in anything. How will you remember her? When you think back, when you hear Nothing Compares or Mandinka, what's the first thing you'll, you'll, you'll think of? Ah, the times we had in, not so much in Bray, because I was visiting and often I wanted to get home, if you know what I mean, because I'd been coming from work. I, I, I would be thinking of the times we shared in Drayton Manor. There's no question about that. You know, simple things like, you know, I cooked her dinner a couple of times and um, she's, you know, I, I, you know, she always had a, she had a kind of wicked sense of humor. You know, she said, oh, that's a lovely meal. And I'd say, you didn't eat it. <laughs> and I, I said, well... You know, I, I mean, uh, it wasn't that well cooked. Well, I thought you said it was a lovely meal. I said, I was saying that because I didn't want to upset you, you know. Uh, 
you know, there was a, there was a wistful sense of humour, you yeah. know. Yeah, and um, if she if she, if you were her friend, it was unconditional. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Now she did go through different times. I mean, there'd be times where I'd be ringing her for two and a half months, uh, not every day now, but regularly. I wouldn't hear from her, you know. Um, you know, it, it, it was a kind of an in out. I mean, I hadn't I hadn't actually seen Sinead for probably six months. Yeah, you know, seven months uh, probably. Uh, uh, but 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 then you go through this spell, if you understand me of maybe meeting once or twice a week for a period of a couple of months and then it was gone again. The, 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 the consistency of, of, of meeting wasn't there, but, but the times we shared were, you know, great. But my memories were of a great matter. They weren't anywhere else, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I am kind of surprised that, you know, everybody recognizes how great Nothing Compares to You is. But really, you know, you could, you could name another eight or nine songs that are just compulsive listening, you know. She's fabulous singer, and herself and Christy got on superbly well, and they did one, even two gigs, I think, in the house. They performed separately as well, mm. many times. And to lose both of them is it's, uh, it's kind of difficult, hard to understand, you know. Um, if there's one song, if you get a chance to listen to it today, Gerald, it 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 will break your heart. But it's Sinead at her very finest, and it's from the Veronica Guerin movie. Uh, and it's called One More oh. Day. And I, One More Day, it's called, I think. And it's it's ah. ab- absolutely stunning. It really, really is. Well, I'm going to do that today. I mean, I want to thank you because over the years, Mr. Gareth O'Callaghan has been a great promoter of Sinead O'Connor many times. And, and it's thanks to people like you that we keep the memory alive and living. Though it's unfortunate we have to do that. Yeah. We prefer them to be here with us. You know? It's great to chat to you, Gerald. Take care of yourself and thanks for joining us. And you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Gerald Keane there. Uh, Solicitor, very well-known solicitor and uh, as you heard there, a very, very close friend of Sinead O'Connor's. Beautiful picture that he painted there of her just sitting on the couch, the dressing going on, the picking at the slice of toast and having her, uh, sipping her cup of warm water. Um, Anne-Marie says, amazing lady, rest well with Shane, rest in peace. Esther says, so sad, it's devastating to hear of her passing. Such an amazing singer, she was a genius, rest easy, Sinead. And Eric says, to be fair, one of our greatest talents here in Ireland, R.I.P. Sinead. For those who may not have heard, I don't think there are anybody out there, any, there's anybody out there who hasn't heard, Sinead O'Connor sadly passed away very, very young, 56 years of age, uh, yesterday evening. Norma Madden says she had a magnificent voice, Gareth, may she rest in peace. Helena Metelko says, oh my God, this is so sad, I just loved her singing and everything about her. As her song says, nothing compares to you, rest in peace, Sinead. And Rita O'Riordan says she was never evil, just had her issues, don't we all? R.I.P. to a beautiful woman, an artist. Rest easy with your son. That's Mandinka there from uh, the Lion and the Cobra. She performed that live on the David Letterman show, the Tonight Show, actually, in America in 1988. I think it was January 1988. Uh, David Letterman fell in over there, so did the United States. Um, obviously, you know, there was plenty of controversy ahead which would divide her popularity in many ways. But that was a moment that... It was almost a, one of those U2 moments, except it was a Sinead O'Connor moment. Tom Dunn writing on the front of the Irish Examiner this morning. I, I love the way he says, when you were told that she was singing the best advice you'd be given would be to step back because she sang like no other. Um, the news, he says, is a bitter blow, a true shock. She was a star. She was the reason performers are called 
stars. The prospect of a world without her is overwhelmingly sad. Uh, there was always the risk, though, she's, he says, that she would take out the talent, that voice lurking in the background. If she started to sing, you were advised to stand well back. She sang like nobody else that I've ever heard. It was otherworldly, remarkable, jaw-dropping. We'd love to hear from you if you met Sinead. Uh, and she had a chat with you or maybe you just asked for an autograph or a photograph in more recent times back then of course there were no photographs photo opportunities unless you had your little old disposable Kodak with you tributes all over the world this morning the New York Times uh, when she was 15 Sinead O'Connor sang Evergreen which was the love theme from A Star Is Born made famous by Barbara Streisand that was back in the 1976 uh, version with Chris Christopherson who introduced her on stage later we'll come back to that this was at a wedding she was at and she was discovered by Paul Byrne a drummer who had an affiliation with the Irish band U2 she left boarding school at 16 she began her career supporting herself by waitressing and performing kissograms who remembers kissograms in a kinky French made costume um, and also in the New York Times today um, there's a piece there I don't know whether you remember the TV interview she did with Dr. Phil. But in 2017, she told Dr. Phil that it was because during her abusive childhood, her mother had compared her with her sister, who had long red hair, unlike Sinead. When I had long hair, she would introduce us at her pretty do- as her pretty daughter and her ugly daughter. Sinead O'Connor said in the interview, and that's why I cut my hair off. I didn't want to be pretty. Parents can really do you in, can't they? They can love you forever and ever. They can make you their eternal friend and you, they're they yours. But there are moments when sometimes they just don't think, they just keep talking. That's a, a, obviously a situation there that Sinead O'Connor felt would influence her and probably reflect uh, for the rest of her life in terms of how she saw her looks, how she saw her hair, how she saw her soul, how she saw her heart. So much to read about in the papers today. As I say, wonderful tribute from Una Mullally in the Irish Times and also Tom Dunn in the Irish Examiner. And uh, we'll come back to this a little later during the morning. We're hoping to talk to Stuart Clark, who's the editor at Hot Press magazine, who would have met Sinead on a number of occasions. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 969696. 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Mind with PJ Coogan. Call 96FM. Now, uh, for the last couple of mornings, we've been touching on uh, pain and uh, the addictive circumstances around a lot of the medications that ease severe chronic pain particularly back pain um, and uh, we, we were talking about dope sick yesterday and indeed the day before and uh, this is a, it's a brilliant brilliant dramatization I called it a documentary it's not a documentary because we actually started to watch it again last night there are eight episodes of it um, and I'm just looking here uh, D and Whitechurch says Gareth just for clarity Dope Sick on Disney Plus is not a documentary rather it's a dramatization based on real life story uh, starring the brilliant Michael Keaton, Batman himself. It's a must-watch and an eye-opener when it comes to policy within the pharmaceutical industry. Th- cheers. Uh, thanks for that, Dee. 
So we sat down yesterday, we watched the first two episodes, enthralled by the series. Brilliant, brilliant production standards as well. Uh, Keaton won um, lead actor at the Golden Globe Awards back back then, 28th uh, Screen Actors Guild Awards, 12th Critics' Choice Television Awards for his performance as the doc in the series. It received hugely positive reviews. Um, It focuses on the epicentre of America's struggle with opioid addiction. And Professor Colin O'Gara was talking about opioids, heroin, codeine, um, uh, OxyContin. This is across the United States on how individuals and families are affected by it. On the alleged conflicts of interest involving Purdue Pharma, who manufactured OxyContin and various government agencies such as the Food and Drug Administration and the United States Department of Justice. OxyContin, that's the theme running through the movie and how it affects Uh, many of the characters who star in it. Extraordinary to watch the deterioration of people who are started on it. It's a brand new drug when this series kicks off. And the sales pitch from Purdue to the doctor is, Doc, this is the miracle relief for chronic severe pain. It is not addictive. It's not addictive, Doc, so you don't have to worry about that. So gradually, uh, with a certain degree of suspicion, he starts... Uh, prescribing it to some of his patients, low doses first. And he's astonished by the way these people who are crippled with severe pain from working down the mines in Virginia um, are literally returned to what looks like a, a wonderfully happy, healthy life mentally and physically. But then they have to up the dose because the OxyContin is so strong, the body's craving it, it needs a bigger dose. And then they start giving out 80 uh, milligram tablets, extraordinary levels of high dosage of such a dangerous, dangerous drug. So uh, we're on episode two. I suggest you watch it. I think you'll find it fascinating. So um, we also had Angela on actually yesterday. Angela, who has chronic back pain, she's taking OxyContin on a daily basis. But are tablets the wrong option? A lot of you have been getting in touch with texts and your your messages, asking the question, discussing methods you're using to try and avoid very seriously addictive medication and do we need to delve deeper and get to the source of the pain uh dominic hegarty runs pain relief ireland he's on the line with me now good morning to you dominic good morning gareth good morning um you by the way i i have to recommend your website uh it's it's an excellent website i have to say and very insightful particularly from the point of view of pain and medication and obviously medication is probably uh, the one-stop shop for many people because I think people tend to say, I don't really have the time to carry out the physical exercises, the Pilates, the you know the physio that's required to actually yeah. alleviate this pain. It's much easier just to get a prescription from my doctor and go to the pharmacy. Isn't that the case? It may appear that way. And, and firstly, so thank you very much for bringing this kind of topic to the airways. It's very important that people realise that there, there are pros and cons to medication. And I suppose just as a caveat, people who are on these products, I wouldn't suddenly suggest they, they stop them because stopping them in a hurry can equally cause problems. So if people are having difficulties, um, they need to manage that as well. So I think that's just as a caveat for people who are on these products because, as you said, there's a lot of people on them. But I, I suppose from a pain f- consultant's perspective, um, what, what 
my target is is to try and eliminate and at least minimize these levels of products for people to give them back a quality of life without depending on pharmacology and it must be said there are great tools there's a there is a role for them but the role has to be modulated it has to be looked after it has to be taken care of and that's i suppose where the the hooks the crux of the question is where do we draw a line and when do we interventions such as pain procedures perhaps pilates more advanced techniques where do they fit into it and there's there's a huge role uh, for this and very often it's lack of knowledge and um, garrett from people they just don't know there is another option and they, they believe that popping the pills every morning and every night is the only solution to the problem and the reverse then happens people get enough of it and they just say they give up on the, the tablets and of course they're still left with the pain so there's a no-win situation for these individuals but i would be in the general physicians pain physicians we would be offering things like interventions injections localized target injections to these areas um, and this area has developed phenomenally over the last uh, number of years the last decade or so uh, we've greater insight we have a greater understanding the quality of what we can provide from interventions are are outstanding and um, so we like to think there's a great option here for people when you know you've, you've a, a, a lot of experience and and over a long long number of years in this whole area and it's invaluable experience because unfortunately there are not many people with the insight that you have as a result of your experience when someone comes to you and says um the pain medication is having no effect whatsoever, but I can't give it up because I'm addicted to it and I'm terrified. I tried to give it up, but the withdrawal symptoms were horrific. What approach do you take there, Dominic? Yeah, um, and that's a very sim- that is a very standard way people will come and present to us. So let's just take the area of, I know back pain, back pain excuse me, has been a team, I suppose. So you'd be looking for why, why is the pain being generated? What, what are the causes for it? Is it a mechanical element? So people, in fact, may have a facet joint or they may have a, a lumbar disc that's actually irritated, that's inflamed, and that's constantly driving the pain pattern on a day-to-day basis. So they might start well in the morning, and as the day goes on, they get stiffer, they get up to soreness they end up with radiating pain across to the front of their hips down their legs so that actually is the driver so that's where i would focus on then is targeting that source of pain try and minimize that and then as part of that then one of the outcomes would be can we reduce those those medications by 30 percent 50 percent and then get them back into activity and it is very feasible to do that because obviously people have to buy in they come with the good intentions to help themselves that's we need to work with but that is all very reasonable because you're actually beginning to get on top of the real source of the problem you're not covering the problem over by just taking a tablet to make you feel better get you over an acute flare-up when it's been really driven by something a lot lot more uh, mm-hmm. a lot more significant and we may investigate it we may do mri scanning for example and, and various x-rays to try and organize it and then you find people fit into certain pathways so there's like a pyramidal effect of where you start you might step forward to the next uh, uh, procedure from there and that helps people a lot now the first thing people always ask me then is well am i on a a similar slippery slope if I start this set of injections, am I going to be stuck with injections? Actually, the answer is no. You tend to get much better. People tend to make the group the progress quicker. It allows them to get back into Pilates, maybe even something as simple as walking down to the shop and walking the dog, which is a huge problem for the moment. 
that rebuilds up the muscle structure. So they're really beginning to work with them with their own issues, and we build within that framework uh, to get it right. So there are there is another complete scope outside it, and probably people who come to my clinic, um, we would look at seventy percent or eighty percent of them requiring some form of procedure because they need it because there is another option. And generally speaking. It's not drug, not drug related. It's not an opioid, and uh, and so be it. But it does make a big difference for these people. They get a bit of confidence in it because I'm sure the other thing that's been a team across your program is the way people feel that this just erodes their confidence. They're not able to go to work. They're not able to get out and do social things, and they just want to kind of become so isolated that they, they just life doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't really be any more fun, you know. Yeah, and, and, and the way you put it, it makes perfect sense. One thing I've done over the last few months, I've kind of, I took a crash course and educated myself in my spine. And this is something I was never aware of before that, uh, well, I, I knew that the, the spine literally controls the entire body, but I wasn't aware that there are four different areas to the spine and each area has a responsibility for different parts of you. Like when you think of, the, you know, the cervical, the thorax, the lumbar, the sacral, they are like different yeah. continents, aren't they? They're drawn together, connected, but they're like different continents. Completely, you couldn't have said it. Couldn't have said it nicer to describe it that way. I think that's that's exactly it, and and that's part of the challenge. For example, when when I would examine someone, is to say which of those portions are the key player, which is the one that's driving this, because essentially, and you probably know yourself, it feels like your whole back is is really really in trouble. It's mm. all over the place. It's just you don't know where it's coming from. Is it my shoulders? Is it my lower back? But by focusing on a primary area, I would work and I would start on that aspect to itself. And then from there, the other areas become much more manageable. And sometimes you actually find that that shoulder pain you thought was a problem actually can be resolved by dealing with the lower back aspect to it itself. Um, so it's, it's a really controlled, really clinically driven, uh, evidence-based uh, for this aspect to it. And thankfully, you know, pain medicine, although people don't talk about it, it's been around for an awful long time. I mean, the last 10, 20 years of just what we can do interventionally, imagery, um, is, is brought things massively forward. And there's people now who really would really would push the interventional aspect from patients' perspective because they can see the benefit. And it ranges right across, you know, interventions, as I said, injections, right up to technology. We have really advanced technology that can deal with all these aspects and, and help people move forward with their lives again. So, yes, the key is you've got to try and localise where the driving source is, start with that and, and move on from there. Were you surprised at the statistics I read out yesterday, uh, Dominic, in relation to the number of Irish people who have got back pain issues? 86% of, of Irish people at some point in their lives will experience uh, bad to severe back pain issues. Were you surprised by that? No, that's that would be the, the norm expectation. The evidence, the literature has been stating that for an awful long time. There was a study going back almost to 2010 and maybe 2000 before that from Europe. So it's a European thing. Ireland is part of that. We were a big player in it. And it's a very, it's a big, big issue. Because you must think about it, about 60% of admissions or at least uh, discussions with GPs revolve around pain. 
and that is one of the key aspects when it comes to that. Um, when I see people in my clinic and we do our work, because um, I'm based in a lot of private, so we see a lot of people coming through the services here, it's it's low back pain, it's 60, 70% of the time, and it's really problematic. And we're always trying to you know get the right mix for people right. So no, it doesn't surprise me at all. And other areas get forgotten about, the cervical area, the headaches, for example, chronic pelvic pain, um, coccidemia, which is tail end pain because someone has slipped on, on the ice or fallen off the chair at home these things just add up so quickly Garrett it's mm. it's uh, it's amazing and you know one in five people suffering globally in Europe with chronic pain makes it a massive disease it makes it a huge issue way beyond diabetes very much beyond even um, kind of cardiology level of stuff but unfortunately it doesn't just have that kind of glamour and that doesn't have that kind of a sexy appeal for people to to, uh, to push it and to meet the needs that are needed uh, globally at this stage and Ireland is no different than the UK and in Europe and um, perhaps in Europe they take the ratio a bit better they have more physicians they have more consultants involved in it so we're always trying to bring the profile up and um, giving people the skills to deal with it in the clinical and healthcare world and we often rely on, on physiotherapists we often rely on other areas to try and help people out an awful lot as well so it's not just you know paying consultants driving this it's a whole a whole family if you like it's a multi-team approach because it's a the disease of pain is a spectrum disease and it needs multi-management it needs a spectrum of management and uh, there are thankfully are a range of options but unfortunately people are just not aware of what they are and as you started from the, the start of this conversation is is it a prescription that's fine because it can be done there and then in a gp's office or wherever it gets the ball rolling but you know three months down the road you are defined as having chronic pain it's only three months 12 weeks so if someone came in today with pain by the jazz weekend in cork they could technically be a chronic pain patient it comes on that quickly so people do need to pay attention to it try and react to it reasonably quickly um, and and act on it you know it's important that they discuss these ways with, with people who know what they're what they're driving them to the right level gps now are more alert than ever thankfully of the dangers of these products um, and opiates are not on their own there are other problems there are other problems with other agents as well and we have to be alert to that mm. um, but the idea here really is to get the multimodal the balanced approach the item that works for an individual because that one-size-fit-all model really doesn't exist and you pick up on the bits that people get the benefit from. So for you, it could be a lumbar facet injection, another individual, it might be something advanced as a neuromodulation and spinal cord stimulation and the spectrum is there. So that's that's what you're trying to do. But awareness is the key element. So as I said, I compliment you and the team there in 96 to be actually putting this kind of conversation up there for people because people just don't uh, probably realise that they can do an awful by helping themselves and get knowledgeable about the area and perhaps more people should study the spine like you did Garrett <laughs> well, I, well this, I suppose it's as a resu- result of that car crash that uh, I, I was in almost four, four, yes, four or five indeed, months ago um, and yeah. uh, I, I compliment you I mean many sorry not many people you know struggle to get back to work so quickly yeah. after such a level of accident you know and that's that's a, that's a, a huge achievement and it just so fair play to you and but for there's so many people who do their very best with this and who deal with yeah. with pain on a daily basis it's it's amazing really and I compliment everyone they're just doing their bit uh, to do it so you know we have to give credit to these people as well well absolutely and as you know as, as you said it's a multi-team approach and I think as you know from the staff where you are there in the, the matter private and where I was in CUH and Infirmary, Dr. Declan Reedy, the spine surgeon, and that extraordinary people with an amazing insight. But I think it's only when you see the insight and the experience that they have, Declan, that are Dominic, that you, you say to yourself, I really need to learn more about my body. 
Um, and that was where I, I discovered the whole issue of uh, what was causing the shocking uh, nerve pains down my left leg into my foot. And it's interesting because uh, Barry, a listener, says, if you could just ask uh, Dominic, uh, I had a bad car accident two years ago, but I'm now left with burning sensations in my feet and in my ankles, and I was diagnosed recently with peripheral neuropathy. Can you ask him, uh, can I expect to have this for the rest of my life, or will it pass? The, the, the two answer is, uh, at about two years out, that is probably very well established in the nerve fibres at this stage. So it, it, it's likely it will stay put. Mm. We know historically, many years before, either of us were around, pain does settle down over time, whether it's the peripheral aspect of it settles down or whether it's the central bit, the actual bit in the brain, the pain center, begins to accept that as norm and says, this is my normal and I, I, I accept that. So that's probably what will happen in some respects. But at that stage out, you know, you know neuropathies, I would be inquiring what has been done, how, is there some options to do that and to manage that locally, is there some aspects that can be treated. So it's not something you'd say, oh, that's the end of the cause. We do have options. There's topical agents, for example, that are deal with peripheral neuropathies very much. We, for example, would have methods of assessing that neuropathy, see how far those fibres are in the mainstream or whether they're outside a certain parameter and how well they could or might respond to it. It's that this is a technique called quantitative sensory testing, which really just sees how well those nerves will function in an office setting, what would happen, how does it respond to hot and cold and then by comparing that to a database that I have from the, the German model and it's globally there, we can see where an individual sits and immediately that's hugely informative to a person because you cannot say, well, I'm sticking my finger in the sky here and I think the wind is blowing left or right. You can say, no, I can see there's 50% of your fibres are misfunctioning but that means just 50% of them doing okay. Maybe we can work on retaining those and possibly making the other group a little bit better. So that's the kind of way, you know, we should be thinking of this type of disease is, is looking for the solutions by, by going forward. So uh, I, I know that's kind of slightly off the question. No, asking, it, but it makes sense. It just demonstrates, it demonstrates how, how a conversation would go in my, in my clinic when a person comes in. That's exactly what I want to tease out. Where are we? And then we can work out where the end point can be from there and work out, uh, you know, is it, an individual, what works for them, what's the best option, uh, etc. So there's, there's these kind of things need to be discussed. Mm. Uh, one final question, because I know you're up to your eyes there in the clinic. Um, in relation to over-the-counter pain medication and I suppose our over-reliance on it because it's just so generally easy to <clears throat> go in and, and pay for and pick up and take, are yeah. we still in that are we still in that corner of the ring? Is that the first option? Or are we becoming more aware uh, of the importance to look into the options that you've been talking about? There's, it's a very hard one to answer straight off, Gar, because it, because of the ease of walking in and getting something and it's a quick fix and, and you get sorted. You know, I can understand why you do that and I'd understand what happens. I think what I would be saying to people, if that becomes the norm and that's your accepted, uh, then they do need to look beyond it. It's grand if it's dealing with the issue and it's dealing with it. As I said, there's a spectrum of pain disease. So if that's what's managing it for people, that's fine. But if it becomes the norm and that's part of your day-to-day -day routine, having to take tablets, I think they then do need to look at them at what's going on, have a discussion with someone, GP-wise, for example, might be a very good starting point. 
and just see is there are other ways of dealing with it. And you know, even if you look at the dosages of some of these products that are available over the counter and, and you highlight at the start, they're sometimes in excess because obviously the pharma business they want it to be effective they want their client who buys their product they think it's wonderful and so a great job so they're tending to err, err on the side of we'll give we'll give plenty whereas an individual might need that much they might need only half of it so it, that's the kind of manipulation that you need to look at see what the numbers are going at so it is it is easy to get to it uh, thankfully, the pharma, the pharmacists have been very helpful in helping control this. And anyone who has gone looking for these products nearly has to fill out a whole format now to get it. And that's the right thing to do mm. because it's not being, it's not trying to be negative towards people. They're actually trying to help you. And if you have to go through that each time, and it's once a week or once a month you're doing it, you know, you probably do need to be speaking to someone and try and find a better solution because long term. Uh, as that documentary and many other ones have gone on over the years, it's not really the long-term solution to just be pouring stuff into your body. Uh, the body is clever. It does realise if I'm getting something I like, it will look for more, it will crave for it. Um, and that's what you have to be observant of and provide other ways of dealing with pain. And as I said, thankfully, we understand pain medicine and pain pathways far better now than we ever did. And uh, I, I'm very confident that we can help a lot of people um, maybe not 100%, but if we can get 50%, 60% improvement for individuals, that can make such a different difference on a person's quality of life. Uh, and that's what it comes down to. Pain is a part of the picture. Quality of life, sleeping quality, ability to go to uh, the, the, the wedding, the party with the friends, and at least socialize and be around people who they, they take care of. And their family, because that's the other side that fall out on this. And I'm sure you might have even seen it yourself, Garrett. So many people fall under stress once the individual in their life is a in pain everybody else is also struggling around it so the knock-on effect of chronic pain is just right right across the whole community that is so true it just changes the whole dynamic of a family it certainly does dominic thank you so much for talking to us this morning thanks for taking the Pleasure. time out of your busy day and um, we'll chat to you again soon thank you if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Very much. Have a great day. Thank you, you too. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. That's Dr. Dem- Dominic Hegarty there. Um, check out his website, by the way. It's a very enlightening, very insightful website. There's huge amounts of information on what we've just been talking about. That's www.painreliefireland.ie. And in relation to Angela, who we were talking to yesterday, Angela said she takes OxyNorm. Now, that's a different division of the OxyContin family. One is time release. Uh, I think the other... Not sure which it is, one way or the other. Uh, the other tends to be a much faster acting uh, tablet uh, and the other tends to be a time release tablet r- released over a four to five period as I understand it. Now, um, if you'd like to give us a shout, 083 396 Join the conversation! Text or WhatsApp 083 396 9696. This is the Opinion Live with PJ Cook. Now, if you've been with us since nine o'clock, you'll know we, we spent all of the first hour of the programme reflecting on Sinead O'Connor's greatest moments. There are so many of them, we would need probably three or four weeks to get through them all. Sinead rejected an easy life for one of truth-telling. The uh, front, uh, the, the, the headline on page three of the Irish Times this morning. Stuart Clark is Hot Press Deputy Editor, and he joins me now. Morning to you, Stuart. Good morning, Gareth. A very, very sad morning. Very, and when I left you a message last night, I I knew how upset you would be because it was Hot Press magazine that first familiarised me with this amazing, amazing icon back in 1987 when The Lion and the Cobra was... was, It was in the can and things were beginning to kind of take off for Sinead. Um, That's right. My my boss would have actually sort of met her when she was playing with a band called Tonton Makout and thought she was, you know, the standout member of the band and, and was keeping sort of kind of tabs on her. So there was a bit of a, an industry buzz about her. I, I was on the radio in um, in Limerick in 1987, and someone sent me the Mandinka single from the record company with a note just saying, look, it, it's special. And I played it, I was going, oh my God, it was like, you know, 1972, hearing <laughs> Bowie and Starman for the yeah, first time. Yeah. She sounded like nothing I'd heard before and, and indeed since. And I was just reflecting to somebody that, you know, if you're old enough to remember 1987, it was a man's world in terms of society and, and, and music. But there were, of course, some great female singers from Ireland, but, but nobody who had something so important to say and the determination to say it, even though it would often be detrimental to their career. She was fearless like that. And, and obviously record company executives were going, oh my God, you've just broken America and you're tearing up the Pope on primetime TV. But she, do you know what? She described herself as a protest singer not a rock star, a protest singer. And I can see that, you know, Dylan, Sinead, they were speaking their truths. Mm. I remember the first time I heard Aretha Franklin singing Respect, and it, it had the same effect on me as the first time I heard Sinead singing Mandinka. Yeah, it was an incredible song. And it, and it seemed like a sort of a, a feisty, bouncy sort of rock song, but then when you picked at the lyrics, you realised there was, there was darkness there. And then when the, the, the parent album, The Lion and the Cobra, came out, that, that sealed the deal. I was one of the judges in, in, in March for the inaugural Choice Music Prize classic Irish album. And when we all met, there's five of us, there was only one artist who was going to get it. You know, we all yeah. knew it would be Sinead O'Connor. But the argument then was which album. I, I was kind of erring on the side of The Lion and the Cobra, but then I re-listened to I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got from 1990. And black boys on mopeds. And you're kind of going, she was singing about black men being targeted by the police two years before the L.A. riots, 30 years before George Floyd. You know, pretty much everything she said was ahead of the curve, but right. And I just felt that album, it could have been recorded yesterday. 
music is one of the things that dates really quickly. That's great in a way because it sounds like the 60s or the 70s. Mm. But Sinead's work just sounds as contemporary now as it did, you know, 30-odd years ago. And that's a remarkable thing to be able to do. And looking at the spiritual side of her of her nature, um, you can hear it in her voice, in anything she sings. In fact, in, in the intonations, when you listen to her, when she's passionate about a subject that she's, you know, she's talking to someone about or an argument or a debate she might be having. Like, what, you know, when you, you as both, you know, your job as, as, as deputy editor and as your, your job as a, a radio presenter for many, many years, but also as your job as a music journalist, what is, what is it about Sinead? Could you pick on one thing that jumps out? Well, I suppose she was on a journey. And people sort of sometimes mocked her life choices. But, you know, she, she said to me, I've got the courage of my contradictions. And she said, I think about life and I maybe feel I wasn't in the right place. It, it, it's a journey. Um, she was passionate. Whatever she did, she gave 100%, whether it was a, a club or Madison Square Garden, she gave it, you know, socks. Massive reggae fan, went to record an album house in Jamaica. I mean, she loved Bob Marley. Um, I think it was just that she was determined to be heard, but also to let other people, by extension, be heard. You know, it was very, very privileged, um, Gareth, in, in 1999 to be at the Hot Press Hall of Fame when we inducted Nina Simone in. And we didn't think she'd be able to come, but we wanted to honour her for her work musically and also her um, incredible civil rights work. She, she said, I'll, I'll come. Um, and we thought, who could we get to present the award to her? There was only one person, of course, Sinead. And I was there when Sinead kind of bowed to her. And Nina said, hey, don't be bowing at me, girl. I should be bowing at you. Yeah. And I thought, well, if Dr. Nina Simone thinks that you're the real deal, you're the real deal. Wow. And I remember interviewing Tracy Chapman uh, back in 1989. And she said... Uh, she was here, she was promoting her own album, obviously Fast Car and Baby Can I Hold You Now. They were the big songs back then. But she said it, it was her big ambition at that point in her life to meet Sinead O'Connor. She had such respect for her. It was really interesting looking at the weight of tributes. They weren't glib. They were all detailing some encounter. But it was from Jedward to Ice-T. And there was a huge amount of those classic kind of hip-hop bands who I think regarded her as a kindred spirit, like Public Enemy, another band who, you know, really don't spare any blushes, saying we, we were really influenced and, and, and admired um, Sinead. She opened doors for, I think I've spoken to you before about Dolores O'Riordan. Now, Dolores had quite different opinions on the church to, to, to Sinead, but the sort of bravery to stand up and speak her truth. She often said, I, I saw Sinead and I thought, if she can do it, I can do it. It might not be popular. It might not help us sell records in, in wherever, but I need to say it. And, and she had Sinead there as a bit of a role model, just to kind of like, just, just sw you know, swallow hard, say it, and, and then it's out there. So I, I'm sure there are kids today in, in bedrooms listening to Sinead O'Connor even before her tragic passing, who will make music because of her. Yeah. And uh, someone said to me uh, a few years back, she put up some alarming stuff. When I say alarming, alarming to this individual on uh, her website uh, about mental health issues and 
this individual who would be in the medical profession said to me, I don't think it's wise she's putting that up because she's confusing people. And I said to him, no, she's not. She's drawing people to a recognition that they're afraid to admit to themselves or to anybody else. She's the one who's out here. She's putting her life on the line and she's wearing her heart in her sleeve and she's describing it as it really is because the mental health industry if that's what you want to call it in this country and it's no more than an industry it's certainly not an empathy uh, she she was a leader she was she was breaking ground with a lot of the material she was talking about mm. that was affecting mm. her own life mm. i've seen a few tributes i don't want to be political points here scoring those but from people who blocked extra help for refugees in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. people who have underfunded our mental health services serially, um, do not fund uh, or, or, or look after people with addiction issues seriously. Uh, and their words, I'm afraid, do ring somewhat hollow. It was unvarnished. Some people said that the worst thing that could have happened to was social media because she obviously would, would be feeling a certain way and get it out there and she couldn't then retract it. But I think it was very useful for people um you know again you, you feel a bit queasy talking about her mental health really on daylight today but it was pivotal because she did struggle she had bipolar and obviously that is what made her career you know more stop start than it otherwise would have been so you, you can't separate the two obviously she's she's much more than her mental health struggles but she would herself say that it informed virtually everything she did to, to a degree so it, it's only honest to talk about it uh, but but in a measured way i think today um you know when she was at the um, vicar street award ceremony you know as is her want she dedicated that award to ireland's refugee community um there's been tweets today from people revealing uh, enormous uh, acts of generosity towards the lgbtqi um, community and, and, and trans community in, in, in particular that weren't publicized she would do donate clothes and mementos for, for raffles to, to, to raise money for people so she was quietly doing her thing all the time and also loudly doing her thing all the time yeah and as uh, una malali correctly points out she was doing what an artist on the pathway does where the journey is the point of the whole journey isn't it really well, I think it is. We all know certain artists that make the record, same record ten times, and they've every right to do that. It's their career. But yeah, she's... I don't want to say it was better in the old days. It was different. But yes, she's one of those artists who's, who has been on a major journey with all sorts of U-turns and D-turns and dramas and tragedies and, and high spots. You don't tend to get that these days because, you know what, most musicians before they even release a record, go through media training. They're kind of told, look, you can't upset the conservatives in the Deep South. That's like, you know, X percent of your market. You won't get bookings in, in Texas. You're going to be picketed when you go to Alabama. And, and there is in this business, and I understand why, with social media and, and, and pylons, there's a conservatism, uh, safety first. Why say it if it's going to cause you problems? Safer not to say it. But mm. of course, Sinead couldn't be media trained. No one could train her. Yeah. You know, she was her own person. And she rejected the cynical lie of holiness, didn't she? That, that really has turned this country on its head and buried it. Well, like I say, you know, she, she, she experienced, you know, it was a bittersweet thing in a way, her, her spell in the Magdalene Laundries, um, because a, a kind nun bought her a guitar and encouraged her. But, you know, the fact that she was even being placed there says all you need to know about the island of the 80s. And I'm sorry, the people who are offended 
by her tearing up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, deserve to be offended. Because if they weren't realising what was going on, then, or if they did and they were complicit in it and weren't speaking out about it, then, I mean, they, they deserve to be offended. And, and, and she was right. Uh, and again, you know, uh, to go back to the politicians, you know, politicians saying, oh, it's terrible. Well, why have we not fully compensated the survivors, the Magdalene Laundries? Why are they not seizing church land to pay the reparations? You know, so uh, I, I hope that we celebrate her music, but we also dwell on what she was saying. And a lot of things that she was saying are still active today and mm. still need to be sorted out. Yeah. There's a, a beautiful photograph of her at Glastonbury in 1992 in one of the papers this morning, uh, beaming and, and just saying, wow, I'm, I'm here. I can't believe I'm here. I'm trying to think, and maybe you can, you can help me here. Uh, was that the year? She, did she appear at Fela in Thurlis that year or was it the following year? Or was she there? Do you know what? There's a lot my, of stuff memory, I can't remember. <laughs> I, I can't remember last week, yet alone 20 years ago. I, I, I do remember her stealing the show uh, when she played Electric Picnic uh, on the back of uh, I'm Not Bossy, I'm the Boss. Uh, her daughter, Roisin, was singing with her and, and the harmonies were celestial. They were just off off, off the scale. Um, I think something else that gets forgotten about her uh, is how wickedly funny she was. She had an armory of uh, off-colour jokes, including one about the Archbishop of Canterbury, which I, I can't tell you, <laughs> maybe over a pint, <laughs> but you can imagine. <laughs> and, you know, you, you'd be there and suddenly she'd say, oh, before we talk about that, and she'd tell you a joke, and you'd be going like, oh, my God. And, and when she laughed, her whole body sort of convulsed. She had like a, almost a witch-like cackle, and her whole face would light up. And I think, you know, my abiding memory will be probably the, the Nina Simone one, because mm -hmm. that, to me, showed how she, she resonated. Um, but also, in, in March, you could see that she was struggling, you know, her... her Beautiful boy, Shane, had died the previous January. But when she was on stage and she was given the award, she beamed. And she sent a very sweet note to us all, all the judges, saying how much it had meant to her. And I, I just am delighted. Because sometimes people don't realize, while they're alive, how much they're loved. Mm. And at Vicar Street, there was like 1,800 people, deafening cheers and a standing ovation. And I like to think that Sinead, because, you know, she had her detractors, would have just gone, my God. And I'm sure it, it connected with her. I hope it did. Yeah. President Michael D. Higgins says this morning, he said uh, she had a unique talent and extraordinary connection with her audience, all of whom held such love and warmth for her. I really hope, Stuart, she knew just how much she was loved. I hope so. She was a... A once in a generation talent and I, I just was so glad to, to meet her and to I mean she was so teeny tiny but had this massive charisma and she was a very alluring woman you just wanted to be around her when she was like you know in form she was magnificent mm. Tom Dunn says in the examiner today he says when you were when she was about to sing the advice you were given was stand back <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, she just had this incredible voice. And, uh, you know, you, you could talk about all sorts of things. It does actually come back to the voice, because without that voice, she would never have had the platform she had. 
That's true. It's great to talk to you, Stuart. See you soon. Thanks a lot. Yeah, pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Stuart Clark there, Hot Press Deputy Editor. Always a joy to have a, a conversation because you never know where it's going to go with Stuart. He's wonderful. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96FM. Just goes to show how incredibly popular she was and how universally loved she was. The, uh, the Times of London, as they call it. Um, they, they have a, a, an amazing uh, tribute to her and a lovely obituary. Um, Fiona Hamilton writes in the Times of London today, Adam Shanley, a programme manager at HIV Ireland, said Sinead showed huge support for people living with HIV. A very different Ireland then and now more so with losing her. Uh, Ice-T, the American rapper and actor, said that Sinead, quote, stood for something unlike most people. Wow. Okay, don't mince your words. Tracy Thorne, the singer with everything but the girl, wrote, Oh, Sinead O'Connor, no, that's a terrible loss. What a singer and what a brave, brave woman. Heartbreaking news. And uh, I'm convinced... I was talking to Stuart Clark there. Neither of us can remember. I am convinced that... Just ahead of Glastonbury in 1992 that Sinead appeared at uh, Fela in Thurlis. Fela, wow, there's another story, amazing. Um, I must tell you the Kirsty McCall story uh, during the rest of the week. We'll get around to that. Mary Higgins is on the line. Morning to you, Mary. Good morning. I suppose we're all in a bit of shock this morning and processing, you know, yeah. like kind of, and I suppose looking at it now in a condensed way and in hindsight because she hasn't been I suppose to the forefront of the media or even music in the last while so we're all kind of really but we needed people we all need people like Sinead you know what I mean she brought us all out of our comfort zone I think everybody in Ireland no matter where you you we all wanted her to be happy you know I think we could see how troubled she was but you couldn't separate the two you couldn't just say oh would you stick to playing music yeah because it was all just such a part of her it was so, when you know you yeah. couldn't separate the two you know what i mean yeah. she needs like so i suppose you know that old saint like shakespeare wrote over 400 years ago great wits to madness are near allied you know we mm-hmm. we all we need these people they push our boundaries they you know they progress I suppose society, they progress humanity, they progress everything, but usually, usually, usually at huge expense to themselves. We benefit, they don't. That is so you know, true. And, and, and you've described it perfectly. Yeah, you know, what, it's just... Yeah. Yeah. When you look back, um, Sinead... Uh, um, Sinead really came to the fore in 1987 and when you think that that's 36 years ago now in those 36 years Mary what what do you remember most about her? Um, just the, the beauty of her as a person you know so that's just you saw this extraordinary person you didn't you didn't condense it in oh she was a great musician she was and you know we I won't say we I once we tolerated her, you know what I mean? We saw her as a nun, we saw her as a priest, we saw her as a Muslim, you know. We saw her in so many different personas, but we still all saw Sinead, which was 
the main thing. You know what I mean? She transcended everything. She she even tried to be herself. Her yeah. just extraordinary inner person transcended every every aspect of her life. You know, she she was greater than the sum of her parts. Yeah, she she had no problem. She railed against everything she was opposed to. Everything, you know. She, yeah. you know, and and with a humanity though, and with an understanding, she didn't just kind of. This wasn't just coming from. I have this platform. I'm going to use it. Yeah, it was deeply felt, meant, and a, an essential part of her. And you know, we wouldn't have had her music if she hadn't had that aspect to her personality to her life to her persona and as i say you know we all benefited and she necessarily didn't you know you have and you know there's i suppose dolores O'Riordan. you know we've had um, amy winehouse they all struggled with their mental health but they all brought a consciousness i suppose to everybody you know sinead more than any of them because she would have been more politically Mm-hmm. active or you know what I mean but they all bring a kind of consciousness of you know look like what Sinead was doing at 21 like I'm a contemporary <laughs> kind of thing of her age wise I couldn't have even you know what I mean I imagined being like that imagine being, like I would you know what I mean wouldn't nearly have had the strength or the courage you know she lived by the courage of her convictions which is you know, she she was thinking about things deeply then at that stage. Now maybe her life experiences up to that as well, you know what I mm. mean, gave her a different perspective on the world from such a young age. You know, it's... Yeah. But as I say, it's we've benefited and, you know... She, she, thank you, I yeah, suppose, no, is all we can say to Sinead. And it's not just thank you for the music either. It's yeah. thank you for just being Sinead. Yeah. And, you know, she was she was sent to one of the most awful of the Magdalene laundries simply because she was caught and convicted of shoplifting at a very, very young age. Now, yeah. you know, her mother had very serious problems as well back then. Yeah. So, you know, one, one thing she said in relation to the shoplifting was it, it just, it made me feel good because I could actually eat something that I couldn't afford to eat. But yeah. yet she was punished so badly that it had such a profound effect on her whole life. I, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, Gareth, but like, did we all not hear the report into youth mental health services on yeah. the... I mean, hello, yeah, yeah, kind of thing. That was then. You know, we all say, oh, that would never happen. It's happening now. It's happening today because we've been told last night in a report that youth aren't getting the mental health that the Magdalene laundry was a solution back then. The solution now seems to be medication or nothing. Yeah. You know, so I, I have has that progressed a whole lot? Who is getting the help now that, you know, are there kids getting help now? You know, are the Sinead's of today getting help? They're not, by all accounts. <laughs> no, no, they're definitely not. They're definitely not. You know, not. so like, you know, so like, we can't... You know what I mean? Say as a society, oh, that should never have, have, you know, we all say that should never have happened to Sinead. But how many other people is it happening to who don't have the outcomes and don't have the talent and don't have the the strength of character to overcome it in the way she did? To And, you know what I mean, at 56, you know, and living so much of her life literally tortured, yeah. torturing herself, not torturing, and still making life so much 
better for so many other people. It's so eloquent. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it really, yeah. really is. Mary, yeah. lovely to chat to you and okay. have a good day. Thanks for your contribution. Okay, bye now. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. But she was ordained a priest... Um, in 1999 by the Latin Tridentine Church. Now this is a sect, as the London Times calls it, that's not recognised by the Catholic Church. (laughs) Spare me. But she stepped back from the role years later saying she was not interested in causing more trouble or, quote, making a circus of the sacraments. I have to say that I'm still drawn, after all these years, I was an altar boy for a long time and I was the only one who could speak the Latin, so... I was put on to the parish priest's mass in the morning at ten past eight. It was wonderful because it meant I didn't have to go into school till about quarter to ten. But uh, I can still remember the Latin mass uh, and the you know re- responding to the parish priest's uh, intonations and in that through throughout the mass. But it was an extraordinary time. But uh, I think Sinead, as she says herself, everything was trans- transient. It was the journey. She wasn't interested in the destination. She joyed every single minute and threw her heart and soul into everything. Mary, who was on to us there uh, before the news at 11, beautiful tribute to Sinead O'Connor and uh, quite a, um, an emotional tribute as well. Thank you for that, Mary. One thing she mentioned while she was on with us was uh, the Mental Health Commission report, uh, which is detailed in the newspapers today. A radical overhaul of how children's mental health services operate is needed so more children can be helped. This is a scathing report. It was published yesterday evening. Inspector of Mental Health Services Dr. Susan Finnerty said the lack of reform is propping up a failing system. It's been failing for as long as I can speak, that's for sure. In in child and adolescent mental health services. This is CAMHS, C-A-M-H-S. I'm just looking at some of the recommendations made by the report addressing access to the service. As inspectors found, quote, lengthy waiting lists. Uh, The wait for children with suicidal intent is 23 days on average. And for deliberate self-harm, it's 65 days. For young people with suicidal ideation, the average wait is 73 days And for eating disorders, it's 54 days. It's a complete joke. Uh, It always has been for as long as I've been involved in this business. I remember back as far as 2005 when I became an advocate for a couple of mental health groups uh, and I gave them my support. I wasn't paid. I, I, I happily did it free of charge as much time as I could possibly give. I remember meeting Enda Kenny and in 2005, the former Taoiseach said that he was going to overhaul the mental health services in this country. Nothing happened. Seven years later, his government, his party in 2012 said the very same thing. Nothing happened. So, see, really, the, the whole mental health platform here is... At the best of times when governments are sailing along trying to turn you know, their back to the real issues, they're really just using the mental health platform as something to tip in and out of. Um, but they, they never really commit themselves to actually overhauling anything until they're standing on your front doorstep and it's an election issue. Um, and, and it's interesting, in response to the report, Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman said, quote, before I could comment in detail on the call by that child's family, this is the child, by the way, uh, that was a teenager affected by care received at South Kerry Cams who received a settlement of 92,500 euro this week. Um, 
This was what he was referring to today. He says, I'd like to see what the Mental Health Commission has to say in terms of their overall understanding of actions in each of the CAMS services across the country. Now, it's only my opinion, but that to me bangs of Mr O'Gorman saying, yeah, let's leave this for a while and we'll see what the fallout is and then we'll address it at some stage. Just like Enda Kenny's government did on two occasions in 2005 and 2012 and nothing happened. Uh, Michael Cronin says, now might be a good time to remind ourselves, each and other, that is, no matter how bad things are, things can and do get better. Well made, point well made. Uh, There will be brighter days ahead for all of us. Sometimes we need to put our trust and faith in others to help us. Make that call, reach out and ask for help. And that is the Samaritans... They're on 116123, okay? Free call number 116123. Uh, non-judgmental, they listen, they encourage you to talk, they give you the space you need, and it's all confidential. And I don't mind saying that they saved my life many, many, many years ago. This week, the criteria, as you know, for the long-awaited public IVF funding was announced by Stephen Donnelly. Now... Let's see how far we get with this one. It has come in for a lot of criticism, and in her own words, uh, Renee von Medling says, I'm a very proud same-sex parent to two young daughters with my wife, Audrey. We conceived through reciprocal IVF, and I had the honour of carrying both pregnancies. I'm an advocate for equal rights for children of LGBTQ plus parents in Ireland. I firmly believe that all families deserve respect and recognition, no matter how they were created. And Renee is on the line to me now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Gareth. Thanks for having me on. Congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Yes, we're expecting our third now, so we're going to be a busy household very yeah, soon. That's yeah. And and <laughs> can, before we go into the whole IVF funding issue here, Renee, how has life changed for you and for Audrey and for the children? I mean, this this was something that no one could would even have considered ten, mm. fifteen years ago. Yeah. So I suppose you know. Life has changed in the, in recent decades for for Irish people, and and what was available and achievable for for queer people decades ago has changed dramatically. You know, twenty years ago, people couldn't have dreamed of of having an equal family, and um, you know, so we feel very fortunate that that we're living in a time where we were able to access fertility services. We were able to get legally married. We were able to have children. Now, it's a whole other other story when it comes to equality for LGBTQ plus families. As many people listening might know, many um, LGBT families are still not equal. We, we have come a long way. And there are a portion of families that are now covered by legislation and are, are treated as equals. But for, for many families, only one parent is still considered um, a legal parent of their children. So many families are left in a situation where they have children who only have one legal parent. What do you make of the the uh, announcements by Health Minister Stephen Donnelly? Mm. So I suppose we we weren't expecting it, it to be wonderful, you know, given our track record, but we were completely shocked and appalled and disgusted that the entire LGBT community is for now excluded. Um, and what I mean by that is the criteria announced the other day um, said that no no person or couple um, needing donor assistance to conceive would be considered 
considered for funding at this time. Um, Minister um, Donnelly did say it would happen at some point in the future, but given, again, our track record, we know that in the past when we've been given pieces of legislation that are um, very narrow in criteria that exclude large portions of society and we're promised that there will be advances coming down the track, we're years and years and years waiting before that ever happens. Um, so to see the entire LGBTQ plus community excluded from public funding is an absolute disgrace. There's no justification for it. We already have legislation in place uh, governing the use of donor materials in Ireland. We already have a national registry for donor conceived children. So there is absolutely no justification to to exclude an entire section of society. There's a big conflict at play here. I can't reconcile it at all when you consider that mm. um, we have a Taoiseach, uh, the very first gay Taoiseach we've ever had here mm. in, in the Republic of Ireland, um, who very happily is seen in public at every available mm. opportunity with his partner, and you can see by mm. them they're extremely close to each other, and I've no doubt that they'll be supporting Gay Pride next week in Cork mm. City and County. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, first of all, he, he's, he's our leader. He, he's very proud to promote the LGBTQ plus community. Um, mm. He's delighted with photo opportunities. But yet, mm-hmm. he's leading a government that has basically, in this whole projection, in this whole program, have mm. locked out the entire LGBTQ plus community. Would it be different mm, yeah. if, say, for example, we had um, a, a female Taoiseach who was gay? Make of it what you will. I, I don't think it necessarily is anything to do with gender rather than individual personalities. But um, I think what you said there is a, a great summary of um, politicians and photo opportunities. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty of actually supporting a community, um, the support is not necessarily always there. And yes, it's very disappointing that we, we have a gay T-shock. And yet again and again and again, the LGBTQ plus community have been excluded and discriminated against very disappointing um, just looking back over what we know from yesterday's announcements in relation to those who will feel inclusive in this plan that mm. they're, they're still rolling out now I mean obviously the HSE is really only letting us see the tip of the iceberg but that I suspect yeah. and if I'm sounding cynical here maybe I am that I suspect is because most of them don't really know what's underneath the iceberg yet they yeah. haven't got to that level which is characteristic of all governments as far as I can remember mm. for as far back um, when you go through things like those with a BMI of under 18 or over 30 mm. will be excluded, yeah. women aged 41 and over will be excluded and men aged 60 60 <laughs> and over will be excluded when you consider that Al Pacino and uh, his young yeah. partner gave birth recently quite naturally yeah yeah, like there are a lot of people who are in shock, not just the LGBT community after the announcement. There are a lot of people who are excluded. Um, you know, myself, 
and my wife, we'd be excluded on three counts, not just because we're gay and we need donor sperm to conceive, but also because we already have children. Anyone who already has a child is excluded um, if, if they wish to have a sibling for their first child. Um, anyone who's already paid for more than one round of privately funded fertility treatment is also excluded. So we'd be excluded on three counts. I've had hundreds of messages from people who would be excluded on, on one, two, three, four or more counts. There are so many exclusions the the criteria is so narrow and you have to wonder where these decisions have come from um you know there was a claim made that it's in order to best distribute the funding to those who have the most chance of success um but i think many experts would would argue with with the logic of the criteria in terms of giving it to those with the best chance of success um it just seems quite faulted um in many ways not just in the exclusionary nature of it, but it it seems faulted across the board. And after waiting for almost three decades for this funding to come in, um, it's disappointing to see how how short it falls. Uh, They actually say, you know, quite openly yesterday, that the the whole programme that they're hoping to roll out now in September is based on the Scottish programme, the the public funding there available. So literally it's just a mirror image of what's happening in Scotland. But, mm. uh, like, surely we're not Scotland. We're a very we're different country. We're a very different, you know, population, culturally, um, I suppose, for, from a sexuality point of view. We're, we're nothing like Scotland. So why can't they come forward with their own plans, personally made, individualistically, for a population in the Republic of Ireland? That's the question. And, you know, they've had a lot of time to work on this. This has been years in the making. And actually, last year, um, you know, Equality for Children, who I'm the CEO of, and LGBT Ireland, Irish Gay Dads, who we work with, we've been campaigning, obviously, for inclusive legislation when it comes to assisted reproduction and surrogacy in Ireland. And that has yet to come forward. And we were accused last year of holding up the public funding model because of the need for inclusion um, for for more families in in that surrogacy and AHR legislation. So at that point, a year ago, we were told it's ready to go and you're holding it up, but we're willing to hold it up. Um, And now they've come forward with it and it looks like it's been thrown together. Um, So I don't know what we were told a year ago, but it certainly doesn't seem like the truth. Right, well, we, we all await to see what happens in September. And that's if anything happens at all. Well, what do yeah. you think about that? Do you think it's yeah. probably something that will probably end up being pushed out again? I, I think that it that will. I think it will start rolling out, but I think that it will take a lot longer than than what people think it will will take, which is really unfortunate. I know myself from going through fertility treatment that time is often of the essence, and um, I do think that it will take a lot longer um, than people may initially think, um, which which is really unfortunate. And I personally think one of the most frustrating aspects of it is that women aged 41 and over will be excluded. Mm. Um, that's appalling. And, and do you see that being changed? I hope it will be changed. I hope it will be changed. If you look at the NHS, the, the age uh, limit is 43, uh, which I think is much more reasonable. Um, and... I, I do hope it's broadened in the future because um, 41 is so young mm. and um, it's, 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 it's really unfortunate for anyone who, who falls outside of that. That again, age, you know, age and time is of the essence when, when you're looking at these, these issues. 
It's lovely to talk to you, Renee. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you. this morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Gareth. Thank you very okay. much. That's Renee von Medling there. And uh, best wishes to her and her wife, Audrey, uh, on the... Um, in, in advance of their third child arriving. And it just struck me there, um, broadcaster Miriam O'Callaghan, who I've great respect for and I know her personally. Um, Miriam, her her most recent four children were all conceived and born while she was in her 40s, in her mid-40s. Um, I'm not quite sure of the dates or her ages, but I definitely know she was well over 41 and I just find that it, it, that particular clause there, women aged 41 and over will be excluded and men aged 60 and over will be excluded. So really, if you've had a really rotten time in a marriage many, many years ago and suddenly you find yourself in a situation where perhaps you're in your 40s and you meet a wonderful guy who is in his early 60s, mid 60s and you just find love and uh, you both are excluded completely from this new plan that's being rolled out uh, by the HSC in September. Join the conversation! Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696 This is the Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. Welcome back. Now, following the vicious assault on American tourist Stephen Termini in Dublin recently, the question is being asked, should more bystanders intervene when they see violence? And coming from Dublin, I have seen this on a number of occasions where uh, you might see a brawl outside a pub between a man, and it's usually a man and a woman, and people tend to either step off the footpath, they either tend to circumvent the whole scene, or they literally just turn around and walk away. I would imagine the reason for that is because they're probably afraid that they'll end up injured or embroiled in a legal situation. Joining me right now is Professor Louise Crowley, a law professor in UCC who runs the Bystander Programme in University College Cork, which encourages people to intervene in situations of aggression. Louise, good morning. Good morning, Gareth. It's becoming more and more and more common. I saw it in Patrick Street recently, roaming gang of young guys wearing hoodies, brand new trainers, uh, labelled jeans. Um, and the minute you see them approaching, your instant reaction is to get out of their way, cross the street, go down a side street, but just not to be there when they get too close to you. Uh, just it, the whole thing, I, I think walking in town now is intimidating. It, it, you get that sense, I don't feel safe. Uh, well, I would cross the road with you, guys. to be perfectly frank. Um, it is unsafe. And those examples that you give and, and the horrific assault on our yeah, um, our tourists from America in Dublin recently are absolutely diabolical incidents and put the fear into everyone, into every normal thinking person in society. And so absolutely, these are outrageous situations and it has changed the society in which we live. I suppose if I could start by saying, when we talk about being a bystander, uh, I, whilst it is so important that we act in a way to either prevent or respond appropriately uh, and to deal in the legal system with those types of incidents, I think I, I, I worry that people are put off the idea of developing their capacity to be an effective bystander when we start with those examples. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't be addressed, but a lot of my work is in the context of sexual harassment and violence. So similarly, obviously, um, you know, terrible acts of, of assault in that context 
context are horrific, but very difficult to challenge in the moment. So whilst we do in the training talk about what you might do in that kind of an extreme situation, which could be, for example, you know, not jumping in, but rather calling the guards, getting allies around you, causing a distraction, you know, something that doesn't put you in danger. But I think it's really important that the conversation also focuses on what we do in less severe situations, whereby we develop a societal norm of being aware, recognising it's not acceptable and having that capacity and desire to do something about it and to talk about it, I suppose, in less extreme circumstances so that that norm of intervening becomes something that we are all aware of and capable of and that we will do different things in different scenarios because the range of things you can do, you know, stems from either, you know, absolutely getting involved in the moment where that's absolutely necessary and it's safe to do so, which, you know, may not be very often and challenging the behaviour, but equally it may be supporting the person who's vulnerable or causing a distraction or calling somebody else you know very often the best intervention can be getting someone else to intervene someone better positioned so I think whilst we do need to talk about these extreme situations we need to think about them I suppose in in the abstract so in that calm context of well how does this become part of what we do every day. I was talking recently to a guy that about this very situation, the, the likelihood that if, if a group approaches you, you've got to make your mind up very quickly. Do I run? Mm. Do I cross the road? Or do I just try to look as casual as I can and just walk through them? He was saying the greatest fear they have is the knife, the stabbing situation where yes. it can happen so quickly. The individual who's stabbed doesn't even realise that they have been stabbed for a couple of seconds until they they, yeah. they collapse. Like, wh- what's the difference between bystanding and intervening? You wouldn't intervene in a situation where there's a knife clearly present. You absolutely, or even the threat of a knife, you know, yeah. and in a gang situation, I think many of us would be very slow to intervene because of the unknown and the, you know, the possibility that there could be a weapon. So in that situation, you know, first of all, d- try not to find yourself in the middle of it, you know, I, I mean, confronting in that situation is not something anybody would advise. I don't think any guard would advise, you know, so in that situation, I would have thought, you know, you remove yourself um if there isn't someone under attack. So there's a couple of different scenarios here. You know, if they're just walking down the footpath, you know, the wise thing to do is just to avoid and maybe ring the guards and say, you know, there's a menacing group of young people, you know, um, that I'm very concerned about. I want to bring it to your attention. So that could be, that's a very effective intervention. You're calling on people who are better positioned, you know, but if you find yourself in a situation where you're the witness, for example, of that same menacing group attacking an innocent person, um, you know, I think about that poor uh, American tourist, you know, Uh, our golden rule is that you only make an intervention if it's safe to do so. So you diving in may exacerbate the situation. Similarly, if you come across, you know, uh, a a man abusing his wife at the side of the road, you jumping in again may cause you physical harm or may escalate the situation. So you do need to make a judgment call in that moment. And it can be, you know, a distraction. You may try to remove the person. Again, in a less extreme situation, if you see somebody uncomfortable in a bar, you can go over and say, Mary, how are you? You know, I haven't seen you in ages. And in that moment, you're pausing whatever is happening. Obviously, in the more extreme situation, you know, getting right involved is probably not a good idea. And and doing something other than that would be a better intervention. And I suppose it's important to say, Gareth, that, you know, when people hear about our training, there is a sort of a sense or a perception that, you know, you're going to learn how to do, I don't know, Kung Fu fighting. You're going to learn how to stand up to the bad guy. And that's not what we're promoting. Mm. What we're promoting is, you know, the awareness piece. So being able to see it and recognize it, because a lot of people don't necessarily recognize um, some of the behaviors that are 
are unacceptable, particularly in the sexual harassment and violence context. But then, you know, having the capacity and the knowledge which we instill in our participants of the range of ways in which you can intervene. And it's not just standing up to the bad guy and jumping in. Yeah, and you know, you were talking there. Ask for Angela. I think that's a it's a well known yes. program now, yeah. particularly in pubs and nightclubs, um, and I've I've seen it in a lot of locations around the city and around the county. But just coming back to Stephen Termini's situation, this is the American tourist. Um, mm. I came from Dublin. I've lived there all of my life. Now I'm very happily living here for the last few years, and I wouldn't want to go back to Dublin. And I think you know the the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, saying that Dublin is actually a safe place I, I almost fell over and laughed so hard until I realised the seriousness of what she had just mm. said now Tanishta Michal Martin has come out and said that Dublin is not a safe place but the, the problem with the tourists American tourists coming to Ireland um, I wouldn't call them vulnerable and I certainly wouldn't call them gullible but they have no idea that they're coming into a completely different shape of society particularly Dublin City than perhaps from the the states and from the cities that they live in themselves you see them clearly on the the Lewis and on the Dart trains in Dublin with their cameras slung over their shoulders yeah. you know with with their uh, their their bun bags around their waist and they're reaching in and they're checking their cards and things like that they're easy pickings and it's only now in the last few days since this tourist has been so violently assaulted and is still in a coma that the news outlets in America are discouraging people from coming to Dublin and to, to some of our beautiful cities. Mm. I'm just wondering, yeah. you know, do we need something more than just the bystander program? Like from, you know, oh, yeah. your, your own pr profession yeah. where you would yeah. lecture in issues and topics relating around sexual violence. Uh, you know, how, yeah. taking aside, like taking off your cap as a law professor, as someone who lives like the rest of us here in Cork, how do you feel about what's going on on our streets? Yeah, I mean, it's shocking. Let, let's all let's all agree on that. And I think that safety and the lack of safety is a, is a huge issue. And it's an issue outside of Dublin. And I, and I think the Taunashir recognised that yesterday. Um, I, I think so from... The, I think it's important to say the bystander intervention program and training is really critical for individual capacity to respond where that is needed. However, the last thing I am saying is that it is upon individuals to police uh, this, the cities and to turn this all around. I mean, that would just be a nonsense. What we need is, you know, a multifaceted approach. So we absolutely do need a higher presence of Gardaí. We need a stronger criminal justice system, which uh, acts in a better way to deter people. You know, that we have a revolving prison system. We have sentences that don't reflect the, the severity of the crimes that are being committed. You know, people are coming in and out of court and they're getting you know suspended sentences repeatedly and you know it it, it they're what they're doing isn't being reflected in the sentencing uh, and even the, the ultimate prosecution so i think that it's a it's a multifaceted issue it involves multiple um departments of our government um but i suppose what we what we need to do is not only be able to address the bad behavior but we have to get into the heads of those people who perhaps haven't started down that awful road, but uh, maybe are beginning to show signs, whether it's, you know, the company they keep or the type of behaviours that they're starting out on. Because we know from our research is that, you know, it's a pyramid of violence. It starts off with, you know, 
verbal aggressions and in microaggressions and smaller incidents. And if these are not, if these go unchecked, we know that those who are so inclined have a real propensity to escalate their behaviour because they have a sense of permission from society because it seems to be normalised, almost a false consensus that what they're doing is okay because their peers aren't calling them out. They're not being challenged by Gardaí. They're not paying consequences for the types of behaviour. And even if it's at the lower end, it's still simply not acceptable. And so what we have to do is make sure that there is absolutely zero tolerance of all of these offences. And I think that if we can address, it's easier to address it at the lower end. I mean, again, we started this conversation talking about how, do, what do you do when someone is being physically assaulted severely, you know, at the side of the street. But how about we start addressing and put a lot of focus on the lower end, still not acceptable behaviours, and try to work there and create an expectation that we all are entitled to live in a safe and respectful society. I have three three teenagers and you know I get I worry when they leave the house mm. where are they going you know my son has talked about you know walking home and he comes across a gang a gang of lads coming against him and he'll cross the road and put his head down and kind of pick up the pace and yeah. he's a six foot three 15 year old but he's very aware of the dangers getting the bus into town if he wears the wrong jacket he knows that he'll come off the bus without it well he won't now because he's six foot three but you know in the past this and it's happened to his friends and, and this is the world that they're growing up in. So they live with this fear and this realisation. How about the people who are committing these offences? We deal with them and we, and we start a new normal mm. that will develop, I would hope, if we really um, tackle it in an intelligent and evidence-based way. One final, <clears throat> excuse me, one final question for you, Louise, in relation to the bystander program and UCC what would you recommend if you had been if if you knew someone who had been sitting on the seven o'clock Dublin to Cork train last Friday night and a man walks by your seat walking down the carriage with a gun in his his jean strap his jean belt it was it's a most bizarre situation but yet it's something that you're thinking to yourself dear god what am I meant to do yeah Okay, a couple of things. Immediately what I'm thinking is you need to speak to someone else. So whether you have a conversation with the person sitting next to you, but probably better, you need to find somebody who's better positioned than you. So A, you could ring the guards immediately, pick up your phone, ring 999 and say, I'm on the train to Cork. A man just passed me. He has a gun in his jeans pocket or whatever. They're on notice immediately. Then you need to and talk to whoever the train, you know, there's a train liaison person mm-hmm. who goes up and down. You need to speak to them and put them on notice. But I imagine that as with any, you know, when there's an assault on the train, the train stops at the next station and the guards come on. So I imagine there's a process there. But the ultimate point, whether you speak to the, the train person or whether you speak to the guards, I do think that that's a perfect example of where you're not well positioned to stand up to somebody with a gun. However, there are people who are. And that's where you reach out because the best intervention there is to get somebody better positioned similarly if you're in town and you see if you know trouble in a nightclub or outside speak to the bouncers speak to the barman or the barwoman they can immediately get the pathway for support you jumping in into the middle of the fight is not going to help anybody so you you may have to pause and watch it for you know as in you see it playing out but you told somebody who can do something that will be effective. And that's really, really critical. I mean, safety is really paramount here. This is not a call to arms. This is a call to awareness, recognition, and making a good intervention where you can. Were you shocked, finally, were you shocked by that incident? This happened, just to remind people, um, a man with a, a gun in his belt um, turned out to be an imitation weapon, according to the Gardaí, on the Friday evening train last Friday from 
Dublin to Cork, 7 o'clock train, packed train. He walked up a carriage, visibly displaying a gun in his holster or in his, his belt. Were you shocked by that? Of course, uh, particularly in a society where we, we don't have armed guardy and, we, you know, we don't see that. I mean, that's like something you'd see I- in a movie, you know, and when you see that, I mean, you're going to be paralyzed for a moment and think, oh, my God, what mm. am I going to do here? And of course, you're not going to jump up and challenge him because you know the immediate and severity of the danger that could be right in front of you. So, you know, keeping calm, realizing this is not a good thing and making that good judgment call. But I mean, is it a con- the fact that he thought that that was a good idea? And I, I you know, I don't know what his motivation was you know was it part of to be intimidating and threatening in society which is just another example of what what we know is happening every day is it somebody who has a very warped sense of humor i'm not sure either way it's not acceptable and again it's about i suppose what we need here and i suppose i'll finish on this gareth is that what we need is that you and i and the vast majority of people in society are absolutely shocked and outraged by you know by the the assault on our american tourists or even that behavior on the train and all of those incidents that we've spoken about However, the challenge is historically, it's always been easier to stay quiet, to not say anything. And so whilst we're all upset and worried about these things, until we have you're brave enough and realize that where it's safe enough to speak up and we do it collectively, what we find then is that the the voice or the actions of those who are perpetrating these offenses, it will shrink because those people will become the outlier. And I do give a sort of a glib example, but I think it, there's a there's a good message in it. If you think about how when, when I was growing out as a teenager and in my 20s, you know, I'd never smoked, but you would come home stinking of cigarettes because mm. everybody smoked in the pub and the nightclubs. And nowadays, if you go into a pub or a nightclub and somebody or a work place and somebody lights a cigarette the whole room will turn around and say what are you doing that's yeah. you just can't do that now i know it's a very different scenario with different consequences but i want to live in a society where i am in an office and you know somebody passes a sexist comment at a meeting with 20 people in the room and everybody will turn in and say oh my god what is wrong with you so however large or small the incident that we need to live in a society where it's absolute zero tolerance and we can all see it and we can all recognize an incident of unacceptability so those who are so inclined become the real minority and we have a swell of strong voices that will reject it and will not accept it and it's hard then to be that guy or that girl who's behaving in a way that is Mm -hmm. so socially unacceptable so i do think that that's where the bystander position comes in and when i deliver workshops i can deliver them to you know large groups i can deliver them to you know for example uccga do the training so we bring the male and female players together and we they learn from each other they listen to each other and what you have then is a collective understanding of what it looks like a collective understanding that it's a shared desire for change so when someone says something inappropriate People know that that you need to call it out. And then when someone intervenes, people know to back them up. And that's what we need for societal change. Great to talk to you this morning, Louise. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gareth. Thank you. Professor Louise Crowley there, a law professor in UCC who runs the Bystander Programme. Jan Peter Nagel is on the line. He's about to chat to me. He's originally from Berlin. He's living now in Ireland. This man lives an incredible life on the road. He got fed up with the nine-to-five rat race. He quit his corporate job in Apple after many, many years. And he now travels the world and he lives in a van. What brought you to realise that you didn't want to live in a house, you wanted to live in a van? <laughs> so I, I am originally from Berlin and uh, I'm a wind and kite surfer. So in Berlin, it's actually quite difficult. You always have a long drive to the ocean to get your sports done. So that made me buy in my first van a really old rust bucket. <laughs> um, 
And uh, since then, I just love going on road trips. Mm. What did you do before? Am I right in thinking you were an event technician, so you constructed stages in that? Exactly, exactly. So that's uh, that's a uh, uh, qualification in Germany, um, where you where you learn how to build theatre stages and events and all that. So that's my original profession. Uh, the, the the whole van life was this something you thought long and hard about, or was it just something that you took to very quickly? Well, it, back then it just happened to me and it uh, started with like uh, long weekends away, holidays away and then at some stage I was ready to go on a on a really large travel because I wanted to explore a little bit and since then it's most of the time I live in bands because I just love it. You took the long western coastline of Europe, which would take you down towards the Canaries, isn't that right? Exactly, exactly. So I left Berlin, uh, drove all the way to the Atlantic coast in France, and then just followed the the coast down the French Atlantic coast, northern Spain, went down all the Portuguese coast, back into southern Spain again, and then from there was a ferry. It took me two and a half days to get to the Canary Islands. And then I ended up staying down there for seven years. Well, how did you get to the Canaries? You you headed out to the very southwestern point of the Algarve of Portugal to, is it Estoril? Uh, no, no, back, I don't know how it's now. Back then, uh, I had to go back into southern Spain to Cadiz. Ah, yes. And take the ferry from there. Right, okay. And how long did you stay in the Canaries? Uh, in total for... Uh, seven years there. Oh, what did you do? Oh, I did everything which happened on the way. I worked as a windsurf instructor. I did all the little jobs I could find. And then the last three years, I was actually working as a receptionist in a four-star holiday hotel. Which is most unlike a man who lives in a van. You, you would have had to wear a, a suit and an official uniform and that, isn't that right? Of course. Like every every morning before my shift, I had to iron my shirt, put on my uniform, the tie, the nameplate, and tie my hair back. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so you ran away from it eventually, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I actually I actually found out I liked it quite a lot. Yeah. But then uh, after seven years on the Canaries, I thought it's time for a change. And uh, that made me then come to Ireland. Well, why Ireland? Was it just because you've never been here or was it was something similar perhaps to... It was... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So it, it, it was basically, I was there, I knew, okay, I want to go on and explore somewhere new. And I knew I wanted to stay somewhere on the Atlantic coast because I just love the Atlantic Ocean. And I wanted to go somewhere where I haven't been before. Mm-hmm. So then I just looked at the map and said, okay, Ireland it is. And I didn't know anything about where I'm going. What was your, was, what was your first impression of Ireland? It was absolutely beautiful. I went, uh, I arrived in Roslair and the only place I ever heard of was Brandon Bay on the Dingle Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So I went straight there and from the first moment on I met really lovely people and it was super welcoming. It was early September so we had the most beautiful September sunshine and I thought this is paradise. Well it certainly sounds like it, that's for sure. 
you're you describe yourself as a nomad craftsman. Yes, yes. And you live in the van. I do live part time in the van and part time in a house, but actually more time in the van. And you feel more yeah. comfortable in the van, don't you? I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. You know, you're always in nature. Um, you're like I'm in my case. I'm a lot on the beach. Sometimes I go to the woods and waking up in the mornings in the woods. It's just precious. Sounds amazing. Can you describe the van, please, Jan? What what's it like inside? What have you done to it to turn it into a home? So uh, maybe I start by telling the history of the van. It was a parcel delivery van in a small town in Germany, and uh, so now it's got its second life here in Ireland. So what I did is I basically started from scratch. I insulated the van. And then I started making up all the interior with everything. So we have, uh, I'm looking at the moment into the bathroom. So we have uh, a bathroom with a hot shower inside. Um, then there is a toilet, which is actually on a drawer so that we have the full space in the shower and if needed, uh, we can go on the loo. Um, then I have a heater inside. Um, there's a large double bed with a, big double doors in the back so in the morning you can just wake up open the double doors and have your coffee in the bed looking at the ocean wow. and then we have a full kitchen in there so a two touring hop a sink as well with hot water and a large rich freezer cool box in there plenty of storage underneath the bed for whatever people want to take if it's mountain bikes or surfboards or whatever people are up to there's plenty of storage for that. And it's mobile at any given moment. You can just sit in behind the steering wheel and go, yes? Exactly, exactly. That's magnificent. Now, um, your business is, it's a very unusual name, unfollow.ie. <laughs> <laughs> why, un why unfollow, Jan? Well, I was, about two years ago or something, I was thinking like, hey, everyone seems to be following someone if it's <laughs> if it's youtubers or if it's instagram uh, influencers or if it's any kind of guru or if it's even the television news mm. everyone everyone is following other people and i think people would be way better off if they just take at least a few days and unfollow everything and just go their own path yeah, so in other words, you switch off externally and you go internally, is that it? Uh, that's a big part of it, yes. And it's basically listen to, your, listen to yourself and uh, have a good time with yourself. Yeah, that's great. It's great philosophy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just wondering, um, in relation to financing your life uh, um, mm -hmm. you know you, you, you can't go through life without money and are, are, is your business profitable? Well I'm just starting off the camper van rental business now mm. but I'm uh, since over six years now I'm self-employed as a carpenter furniture maker All right. and uh, yeah then as I made my own van and then uh, I had the, the big opportunity to actually uh, I was asked to make a camper van for customers, so I uh, spent over four months of making a bespoke camper van for them. 
And basically for me, unfollow is the next step. And that's literally just starting out. But it seems to be on a great start. Yeah. And you're, you're actually taking bookings now, are you? I am taking bookings. Um, my website is, and the online booking is still not ready. Okay. So uh, I take the bookings at the moment uh, via phone and email. Right. Do you know something? It, it sounds like, um, I, I don't know what you'd call it. It's, it's, it sounds like something that you would see in your dreams, but you've, you've made it a reality. And do you think you'll make Ireland your permanent home? It is my permanent home since 13 years now. <laughs> oh, wow. Wonderful. I, lo I, I love the winter escape to Spain for a month or two, you know, in the in grim January month or something. Yep. I, try, I try to head south, um, but Ireland is my home, yes. Wow. Well, look, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Jan, and uh, have a, a pleasant August and a pleasant autumn as well. And you're there in Kilbritton, aren't you? Uh, I, have, I have my workshop down here in Kilbritton, yes. Mm-hmm. Great, well, uh, lovely to talk camp, to you. The, camp, the camp events are actually based in Cork City. All right, okay. Well, <laughs> unfollow.ie, Jan Peter Nagel. Great to chat to you, Jan. You take care. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Sounds like the ideal life, doesn't it? Really perfect. Although I'm sure it can be, it can be challenging, that's for sure. Jan Peter Nagel and uh, a dream come true for him. Now, just before we leave you, it's been a very sad morning. It's been a very sad evening yesterday evening with the news that Sinead O'Connor has passed away unexpectedly.